0: The importance of getting a clinical trial designed for a startup is significantly more than large pharma. So we can get an idea to the first patient in trials in three months, whereas typically it takes one to two years. So you're a startup looking for money, then you should come and see Professor Derek Exner. And it's possible we'll work with you and really fast track. And the way in which Derek's been able to do that is by lining up all the actors ready to go before you come in.
1: University of Calgary is the number one Canadian institution for startup creation according to Autumn's 2020 ranking, and it's achieved that through a range of fascinating initiatives, like its Clinical Trial Design Programme. John Wilson, Chief Executive of Innovate Calgary, tells us more about that programme on this episode, and also delves into why Calgary, whose economy has been built on fossil fuels, is uniquely placed to put carbon emissions back into the ground. He also tells us about USeed, the largest university-based fund of its kind in the country, ponders why it's been such a challenge to recruit tech transfer practitioners as of late, and looks back on his own career in tech transfer that started at Oxford University Innovation. My name is Thierry Heales, and this is Talking Tech Transfer. John, welcome to the podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Nice to spend some time with you.
1: I look forward to it. To start with, can you give me an overview of Innovate Calgary, perhaps with some headline figures? Sure.
0: So we are a wholly owned subsidiary company of the University of Calgary. We, like many of our peer offices, were formed in the 1980s. Today, we're about 50 staff, so that's quite a large organisation. Each year, we work with 400 to 500 researchers. That's one of my favorite statistics that's not collected. That's about a quarter of all the researchers in the university. Well, I'm running my own campaign for all universities to collect number of researchers. And I think, as you know, Cherry, one of my absolute favorite statistic is that autumn, in the most recent autumn survey, ranks the University of Calgary and Innovate Calgary as number one in startups in Canada.
1: And that's something we're quite proud of. I can imagine, yes. I think we obviously, we had a chat before we recorded this and I hadn't realized just quite how big Innovate Calgary was. I think in my head, it was a normal tech transfer office rather than it actually being the number one in Canada. Yeah. I don't know if that's a response you often get.
0: Yeah, it's uh, within Canada, people know us. I'll elaborate a bit more. We're not just, Tech Transfer Office. And so I have four executive directors that run four groups. They're business groups, not all intended to make money, but they're business groups. The first of those is our IP group, which is a tech transfer office, stroke, ILO. Perhaps we'll get on to which of those we do more of. But then we have three other functions. We manage our own investment funds, and that program's UCED. We help to operate a research park. University Innovation Quarter, UIQ, and we also run a clinical design program. So those four things together add up to about 50 people. And it's, I think one of the things I enjoy about it so much is it's difficult to know at any one time who's working in which group, apart from the executive directors. So there's a lot of fluidity. It makes it fun, Jerry. It's more than just licensing.
1: Yeah. I want to look at most of these components in a second, but perhaps... Another slightly more general question. How do you generally promote entrepreneurship on campus? Is the Calgary community quite entrepreneurial?
0: It is, yeah. It's a very entrepreneurial city. Specifically, we run a fellowship program. So we understand that not every researcher, postdoc, postgrad is ready to file a patent, set up a company. So every year, we give away fellowship awards, and they're $200,000 each, and we give multiple away every year. So it's serious money. And this is to help people develop their research so that it fills our funnel, as it were, fills our pipeline. And then we've been doing that for a number of years. And then just last year, we started a program that we called E2I, which is Entrepreneurship to Innovation. And we specifically reached out to first-time entrepreneurs on campus. And we had 100 applicants, So, and these are pairs of professors and postdocs or postgrads. They have to apply as a pair, and they have to have not worked with us in the past. So there's 100 new researchers, 100 new postgrads, postdocs who are coming to us with their idea. And we then have set up a program around how do we help develop their ideas. And then more generally, I should put this in the context, and like many innovation offices, although we do several things, we don't do everything, at the University of Calgary, we have a separate entrepreneurship office embedded within the university, and that's called the Hunter Hub. And they really manage most of the entrepreneurial stuff going on, which in Canada today is significantly based around work-integrated learning.
1: Do you engage with the wider local community, or do you just focus on campus? Yeah, no, I often start my talks depending on the
0: audience, on describing you, Calgary as a university of the city for the city, which is true. We are a 1960s university. We are the fifth largest university in Canada, which is quite remarkable given that we only started in the 60s. But it's within living memory, I think is my point. So it was the good and the great from the city that formed this university. And those ties are very strong. So that's the general situation. But then again, specifically, we have these investment funds we have a group of seven advisors on each investment fund and those seven advisors come from the city and we help to run a research park we have hubs in so sort of themed areas of research and innovation within that research park I'm sitting here your audience can't see it but I'm sitting today in the life science innovation hub and we have 65 life science companies associated with this hub some of them Are in the building, some are in the city working with us. So that's a way in which we engage with the high tech industry in the city.
1: That's amazing. You've mentioned funds there as well, and I think you mentioned Useeds earlier as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about Useed and those funds?
0: Our language is that Useed is a program, and inside this program, we have themed funds. It's philanthropically driven, so we're very privileged, very lucky here in Calgary in that it is a fairly wealthy city. So folks give us money. The deal is Innovate Calgary doesn't charge to manage this investment fund. And these funds are evergreen. So any money that we make, we will put back in. We started actually right at the beginning of COVID. So it's been an interesting journey. Much of this we've done none in person at all. But today we have four funds, and they are health, child health, social and then we have one fund that can invest in anything and that's run by a class of students out of our business school. We're not quite finished we're working on energy and agriculture neuroscience an indigenous fund and performing arts and the deal is is that we need five million to start a fund we invest up to three hundred thousand dollars typically in each opportunity and the investments are very milestone oriented. So, we really are looking to push an idea such that someone else will invest in it
1: after us. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned healthcare and pediatric healthcare. Is pediatric healthcare something that Calgary is specifically focused on?
0: Yeah, it's an area of excellence in in Calgary, in Canada, and beyond. We have the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation, which is, I think I'm correct in saying it's the largest funder of research. At the University of Calgary. So it's a really big deal. And in all of the funds we've done so far, we've partnered with a significant entity in the city. In the social fund, we've partnered with United Way, which here in North America is a significant social actor managing groups of other smaller charities and just coordinating social good within the city. So lots of bonuses from doing this, apart from deploying money into good areas. The partnerships that we're forming are fantastic.
1: I want to stay on healthcare for a second, if I may. Can you tell me a little bit about the clinical trials program as well? Yeah, a little bit, I think, is going
0: to be the key here. I'm not an expert. I do know. And it's run by one of our leading professors here, Professor Derek Exner. And he also has the role of one of our executive directors. And so there's another way in which we're reasonably flexible how many TTOs have a leading researcher as an executive director running one of their business groups. You know We really enjoy the relationship. His thesis was that clinical trials writ large have been designed for large farmers, large biotechs. And that's the history of clinical trials. And typically they take one to two years just in the design phase. Very important to get the design right. Historically, no massive time pressures. We all know that as we move to a startup-oriented pipeline for tech, which is what we've been doing for the last 10, maybe 20 years, the importance of getting a clinical trial designed for a startup is significantly more than large pharma. So we can get an idea to the first patient in trials in three months, whereas typically it takes one to two years. So you're a startup looking for money, then you should come and see Professor Derek Exner. And it's possible we'll work with you and really fast track. And then the way in which Derek's been able to do that is by lining up all the actors ready to go before you come in. And we've also developed some proprietary software, which allow us to move through many of the regulatory processes very quickly, as well as having the hospitals, the researchers all lined up again before you come to us. So it's pretty fascinating. And I've already said a lot more than I don't really understand myself. (laughs)
1: The key component I got there is just the phenomenal speed at which it moves. Three months is jaw-droppingly fast.
0: Yeah, your investors don't have time to wait for you to raise the money or to design something for two years. They want it done in three months, preferably six months, if it's a more complex trial.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the research park as well. Can you tell me a little bit about this as well? We are the only large
0: university in Canada that had this opportunity. There's 80 acres of land directly adjacent to the main campus. If you go to U Montreal or UBC or U of T, they're in heavily built-up cities. space is a premium. But we had 80 acres directly next to the main campus, which the university bought off the government of Alberta four years ago. There are already some buildings there. As I've mentioned before this Life Sciences Innovation Hub. I was actually a large corporate research building that we then transformed into a life sciences building. Even though we're four years in, we're still in the design process. I think this is one of these areas where COVID has produced some uncertainty and just some difficulty. But we think that there are going to be five to six hubs in here in phase one, life, social, energy, aerospace, quantum, maybe one other. And space is important, but all of the programming and investment that goes along with that. So we really are attempting to build a complete one-stop-shop process here in Calgary where we have all of the elements to produce a a successful startup.
1: On that note, perhaps, if you could expand a bit on it, what are the opportunities in the Calgary ecosystem as it stands today? Energy has been
0: at the centre of Calgary for a long time. Not always, but before that, it was a cattle town. And then the history of Calgary is not that old. That The first building was built here about 1880. So, you know, by European terms, again, I and I like providing these stats for people in the old world because it sort of blows your mind that the fort in Calgary was bought in 1880, and that was the first building that was built. Very young, historically cattle, but then after the Second World War, uh, oil and gas was developed here. And the whole city was built on that, and fortunes were made. And Calgarians will tell you that they've been bankrolling Canada ever since. And there's a significant amount of truth in that. We've had a great ride. It's absolutely not over. We you know we may get onto the future of clean tech, and we absolutely want to be a part of that. But we, fortunately for us, we'd started this life sciences journey before the pandemic. It's only going to be accelerated now. Right? For security, we're going to want to have our own health research infrastructure. I think every jurisdiction is going to want to produce its own vaccines. Aerospace, the university is very strong in space. The city has a major international airport. Calgary International is a big airport. And there's lots of industry around that, all the associated industries around aerospace. So I think that's something that's quite exciting. And just a few weeks ago, there was a significant announcement in Canada made that um, Calgary is going to be one of the quantum centres in Canada, and um, so that's tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of investment into a quantum centre here. Exciting
1: times. I almost don't want to ask, but what are the challenges that Calgary faces? Historically, it has been doing anything else but
0: energy. The city has been so successful at developing the model and taking the risks at finding oil and gas in the ground and getting it out cleanly and ethically. Now, we know that things have to change, but still, Canada remains one of the most ethical producers of oil and gas. And we're going to be with that for some time. So we do know that there's a future. But to get back to your question, yes, historically, we've had downturns, but then quickly we've come out of them. I think we're past that now. I think we fully understand that Calgary wants to be more than an energy town. And so I think the challenges are going.
1: Is that both a recognition in Calgary and pressure from provincial or even federal government to move away from oil and fossil fuels?
0: I think so, yes. One of the favourite words in Calgary is maverick. There is a maverick reputation. So many Calgarians wouldn't like to say that they've been persuaded by government to do anything. But there's a lot of smart people here, Maverick or not, there's a lot of smart people here. And we want to be the most ethical producer of oil and gas. It's not the topic of this conversation, but there's a significant future for Alberta in carbon capture and storage. It's, it is it is worth sharing just at the highest level. You know, the skills that have been built here since 1947 of you know heavy geological skills, software skills, understanding how to get oil and gas safely out of the ground are pretty much the same skills as required to put CO2 back in the ground. So we have literally thousands of engineers here and wells which are now empty, which have exactly the right bedrock for putting carbon dioxide back into the ground. So you're going to see a massive industry. You're going to see Alberta get to carbon zero by putting stuff back in the ground. So a huge future still in this industry
1: in Alberta. That's amazing. Even the challenges are opportunities.
0: Yeah, I'm sure some people saw it a long time before me, but I've only really realized the opportunity by following the number of startups in that space and programs that the government has. And yes, we are going to be capturing much of Canada's fossil fuel emissions and putting them back here in Alberta. That's a great story, isn't it? That's us completing the cycle. You know, we understand that we didn't fully account for the full carbon cycle. And as luck has it, we are able now to complete that cycle and to put the carbon back in the ground. should be an amazing journey for the next 50 years or so.
1: I look forward to keeping a close eye on it. Hopefully I'll be around in 50 years still. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion and Indigenous Engagement Committee as well? Yeah, so you've been looking at our website. I have, (laughs) yes. I have to do my research, John. (laughs)
0: Yeah, No. Look, it's really important. It's important to us... As everyone else, I can't say, and I'm, I'm aware that your audience is more than Canadian. We have separated EDI and Indigenous engagement. They're now two different groups of us working on two different projects. Indigenous engagement is massively important in Canada. I invite your European listeners to do a little bit of research about the history of Indigenous affairs in Canada, but you know, in many other, you know, colonial territories. And it's not all great. And to your point a minute ago, there's a huge opportunity for us to start making amends. And so I lead the Indigenous group, and then one of my colleagues leads the EDI group. I can tell you that I started, I met with each of our Indigenous researchers here. We've started a discussion. I have regular meetings every month. Innovate Calgary is very project-oriented, very transactional. And so although relationships remain important and we'll continue those, we need to have outcomes. And I'm pretty much getting to the conclusion that us working with an Indigenous group running an Indigenous useed seed is the way that we're going to add value. Lots of good Indigenous entrepreneurs, there are lots of particular issues that Indigenous peoples face, and we think we have... If nothing else, some of the project management skills here at Innovate Calgary to then collaborate with an indigenous group who understand the cultural aspects here, such that we can help transform indigenous peoples and communities. And it's important that there are hundreds of indigenous communities here, and they're all different. It is a complex
1: and rich path that we're enjoying. Yeah, the only way to get to a better future is to give these people a seat at the table, as you say, and actively engage with them.
0: It's very relationship-oriented, it's very time-oriented, and you know, spending a generation with someone is what you have to do. And we're aware of that, but again, given our transactional project management nature, we want to go down this path with them whilst we're trying to help them do something.
1: Yeah. Do you track your engagement from women and researchers from a minority background?
0: We haven't done historically, no. So we, when we first started looking at this. We looked at the thousands of projects that we've run. And we did contemplate briefly going through the names of everyone and working out and getting a baseline, even that's challenging. You can't always identify by a name whether it's someone who is a woman or a man. What we have done on a much smaller scale is we're very startup oriented. We've had around 100 startups in the last five years. 100, and we know those people. And 100 is a manageable enough that we've gone through that record. So the ones that I know here that I can share is that of those 100 startups, over a half of them have had a female founder. So I've had a woman founder. So what, Terry, I can't share with you is whether that's good or bad. I mean, it sounds like it's reasonably good, but maybe everyone else has had more than one woman founder. I get some comfort from that, that I wouldn't have been very happy if it was 10% or something.
1: I think generally, when I've spoken to people, they were around the twenty to thirty percent mark. Sometimes forty percent, if they've been actively trying to change things. So I think you're you're doing fairly well. Obviously, you know, there's always room for improvement, as there is everywhere.
0: Yeah, I would say that our startup model helps a little bit here. Startups have several founders. We also have, and I've alluded to this a bit earlier. We have a number of positive efforts in including students, postdocs, postgrads. And I think you're much more likely to get women participation there. The reality is that there are still more men as professors in universities than women. And universities, although they're trying hard to change that, don't move on a dime, don't turn on the dime. And, you know, once you're a professor, you're there for a career. So it's going to take universities a generation to really put things right. If you include students and I include in that postgrads and postdocs, you can move much more quickly, and so that's how I'm pretty sure that's how we get to the above 50% of startups have women involved. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: How do you generally find management for your startups? Are there experienced entrepreneurs floating about Calgary?
0: No, I think we have the same challenges as many others. As I mentioned a minute ago, we do rely on postdocs heavily. I think that's a model that many other universities use. I'm Comfortable with the notion that our startups get to a certain point and then they're either taken over or bought up or other management team comes in at a later time. We have seen that time and time again. We prepare our students, postdocs, researchers to either exit at that point or stay on often in a technical role. Every now and then you get someone who transitions into the CEO role, but there aren't many professors that leave. To become CEO of a startup. Not here, not anywhere. And I'm not sure that we're really trying to encourage that.
1: How easy or not is it to find capital for your startups?
0: I think we're quite fortunate. Calgary, I've said it's an energy city. That energy has been driven by private equity. So there is a lot of private equity in the city. Again, historically invested in oil and gas research. We have something called the Creative Destruction Lab here in Calgary. It's actually in a number of cities in Canada. I believe it's in Oxford in the UK and then in one or two other cities around the world. So it's a Toronto-founded-based endeavor that spread throughout Canada and then a few other places. The importance of the CDL is that CDL provides mentorship. So I put that in because I think mentorship and advice is more valuable than money. It's a difficult thing to say if you haven't got enough money. But generally, you can get the money. There are far more startups that have made mistakes and done the wrong thing. And that's inevitable to a certain extent. But having a program where there is mentorship and advice, I think, is very important. And CDL is how we do it here significantly. I know that many other places do it in other ways.
1: Do your companies generally stay in Calgary, Alberta, or even Canada, or do they go to Silicon Valley or elsewhere?
0: Yeah, we like for part of them to stay here. And looking through these questions last night, Thierry, this reminded me, this was quite a big discussion before COVID. COVID (laughs) COVID has just swamped everything, hasn't it? And look, I seriously hope everyone is doing okay. But one of the big discussions we were having, because we're designing UIQ, and so we're talking with investors, etc., cetera, is, you know, how do we retain all this talent and all this effort? We've already seen that of the successes that we've had so far, and we have a great company here that's called Parvus Therapeutics. They've had over a billion dollars of investment and their COO is 50 yards behind me. However, they also have labs in Spain. And they have labs and the CEO spends much of their time in Silicon Valley. And so we've already seen this distributed model prior to COVID and prior to the Zoom world, where you're building a great tech company, you're building a unicorn, you probably don't need that unicorn to be in one place. yet. You can get there with 500 staff, let's say, and they can be distributed around the world. And what, again, coming back to COVID, what it's shown us is that actually that's only probably going to be accelerated more and more. So we would like to hold a part of that company. And then we would encourage it to grow and have an office in India, have an office in Silicon Valley and wherever else makes sense. And that model we like because it builds relationships and we'll try and keep at least a valuable part in
1: the city. How easy is it for you to find? I think my question was originally specifically tech transfer practitioners, but considering you handle a lot of things how easy is it to generally find staff for your office?
0: It is challenging. We spend quite a bit of time hiring. We nearly always have some job adverts out. We are managing to attract people from around the world. We're in the process of hiring a young woman from France. We managed to attract a couple of people up from the West Coast in California a year ago. So we can attract people canada is the world in one country that helps us is that we do have ties around the world and then like everyone else you have to sell what you've got so i you know let me share with your listeners here that we have a six month ski season here jerry at one of the world's best ski resorts i'm in (laughs) (laughs) who wouldn't want that and um send me your resume
1: (laughs) i will do that as soon as we stop recording You yourself spent much of your early career in Europe. Your accent kind of gives it away that you are not Canadian. You spent three years at Oxford University Innovation. You then moved to Brook University in 2011 and then obviously innovate Calgary in 2016. Why did you move to Canada and how did you end up in Calgary?
0: Yes, how did I end up? here? Yeah, yes. It's
1: <laughs> Apart from the ski I, I, season, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, um, in truth, that was a significant part. I was at Oxford, as you say, an amazing opportunity. If Actually, to go back a little bit to your last question, if you get the chance to go and work at Oxford's Innovation Office, I would go and do it. I can't think of anyone on the planet that's better than them, and they have many advantages, and it's a great learning process. I felt I was still a relatively young person then, clearly much older now, Jerry, but I just thought there'd be more opportunities for me in the U.S., and so I started looking for positions at the U.S. was actually offered, a position that... One large U.S. university, but then a small Canadian university said that they were setting up a tech transfer office and they pledged certain amounts of funds. And would I like to start something from scratch? And that appeals to me. I have run a startup before. I like the building something from nothing. I knew nothing about Niagara, which is where Brock University is, apart from I think we all know about Niagara Falls. But there's a region in Niagara, and it's a wonderful place to live. So I went there. I really enjoyed it. I reluctant to leave in many ways. But then this position came available. I've already said we're the fifth largest university in Canada, which is interesting. Fifth means I think that we're hungry, we have things to do. I think we can build the best innovation office in Canada here. And I mean that in a collaborative way. An Autumn Canada group meets every year. A couple of months ago, it was in Montreal. We are very happy to share anything we're doing with our colleagues. I learn just as much from my colleagues as perhaps they learn from us. So I want to be the best, but I want to share it with everyone because I'm passionate about university innovation and I would like us all to do a better job and be allowed to do a better job.
1: Is there anything that Europe could learn from Canada or the other way around? I don't
0: think specifically one region from another, but I do think that we can learn from each other as per my last theme. You know, we've been doing this for 40 or 50 years in a fairly organized way. I think things are changing quite quickly. I would encourage everyone to go to autumn or to go to the praxis meetings. And there's a lot to be learned. So I do think there's a lot for us to learn from each other. But I don't think there's any magic in Canada that I'm aware of that folks in Italy or France or the UK should do. I need to get to a European meeting at some point. I will pledge to go and try and learn from my European colleagues. That kind of sharing hopefully will be very valuable to both groups.
1: Is there any advice that you would give to someone starting out in this career today?
0: I would say you've already made a good decision. I think it's a fantastic area to work in. I sort of half-jokingly said earlier to you, but to to all your audience as well, the address is hr.innovatecalgary.com. Send your resume to us. But more seriously, it's a
1: privilege. Learn from others. Do your best. If you had a magic wand, is there anything that you would change about how tech transfer is done?
0: Yep. And this is true in Canada, as in other places. I'm aware. I didn't invite Calgary. I think we're quite lucky. President of the university is very supportive. I get regular meetings every month with the president of the university. I don't think many of my peers have that kind of access. Vice president research, other vice presidents on my board, regular meetings, numbers in cell phone. So we, and you can tell from what we do, we have great support here. But that support's not guaranteed, and many of my colleagues don't have it now. And in Canada, there's no central funding of innovation at universities, and that's true in many places around the world. So my magic wand would be, let's say, 1% of the university's research budget that a government of some kind should give that to every university for innovation. For Innovate Calgary, that would be about 5 million. And um, we could do some great things with that 5 million. And I'm sure that my colleagues at universities around the world would love to have those kinds of sums of money to do great things as well.
1: Yeah, I think they would probably share that wish. Can you give me some examples of Innovate Calgary startups. I'm going to
0: share with you three in chronological order, and they also go social, health, energy. They are the three buckets that we live in, that we deal with here in Calgary. So, in the 1980s, right at the very beginning of our journey, we helped to set up a company called Living Works. This was a company that was a collaboration between two uh, clinicians here in the med school and two social workers. And they were doing research on suicide intervention protocols. And so we worked with them right from the first invention disclosure, lots of discussions. I've had a look at some of the historical files, lots of discussions about, should this be a for-profit or not-for-profit? In the end, we went the for-profit route, and this was such that we could finance it significantly. The company, Living Works, had a significant breakthrough in the 90s, was able to present at a United Nations meeting, got significant take-up from governments and militaries around the world. And so now, today, the Living Works Suicide Intervention Protocol is used around the world in different countries, different militaries. I've seen statistics. I saw one recently that 200,000 people have been trained up as practitioners in this suicide intervention protocol. So we can only guess how many interventions have been made and how many lives have been saved. So that's a really great story for university research. And in the 1980s, there's lots of talk about us doing more social work. We were doing it right from the get-go. A second company, this is topical because this company exited. We had a sale to an American private equity firm this year. We started it in 2004. We were significantly the management team. The company is called Circle Cardiovascular Imaging, recently sold for about $220 It develops software that allows you to triage and design treatment pathways for people who are having cardio issues right up to cardiac arrest so when someone's having a serious cardiac event there's a number of different things you can do that take you down different paths very important you take the right path if you're going to give the best outcome for that patient because we have recently had an exit the ceo came to one of our events gave great talk about the history and some of the things that are going on of the 50 leading hospitals in north america 40 deploy this software so again we are talking about hundreds of thousands of interventions every year, saving lives. And then the final one is carbon engineering. This was started again in the 2000s by a UCAL professor, David Keith. He's actually now a Harvard professor, but he still lives locally because he likes the skiing. He started carbon engineering. Today, it's the largest direct air capture company in North America. So I think there's one other in Europe that rivals it. I for sure don't know what is going to be the balance of how we get to carbon zero, but direct air capture is in the mix. Again, research that came out of U Calgary. I saw in some press just in the last couple of weeks. Today they have one large direct air capture facility in British Columbia here in Canada, and they just have plans to go from one to 100 facilities in the next few years. And so, hopefully going to be a big part of the how do we get to carbon zero. So for three U Calgary companies, we've done 100 in the last five years. Let's hope that a few of those 100 go on that same journey.
1: Yeah, I mean, those three, planet-saving, life-saving technologies. So they are some very good choices. We are almost at the end. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want people to know or something you want to reiterate? other than perhaps the HR at you <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really enjoy this profession. I decided to do this having worked in the private sector and worked in academia. I think it's amazing. If anyone listening to this is interested, would like to meet with me or some of my colleagues who know how Zoom works, I'm more than happy to have a discussion with you. and help to inspire each other All doing a great thing.
1: John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and learn more about Innovate Calgary.
0: Thank you, Thierry. Thank you for your time.
1: Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Healers. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university on Twitter at GU Venturing and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at teheles at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye! d